I am great what hymns are. That is a plus anytime I come into the worship of my God, things that I can actually uh, sing, well, uh, make noise with. It is good to know that. It is, it is good to be here with God's people. The psalmists do it over and over again. Psalm 84, how lovely are the, thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. I trust that that is your experience each and every time that you gather with the people of God to enjoy that focus once again upon that which is central to our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. And it is to that I wish wish to turn our attention this morning. Sometimes when things don't go right, or at least according to our thinking, don't, don't go right in life, when confusion can set in, it is good to go back to those central matters in our Christian life. And of course for us, that's easy. That's Christ. Christ only, Christ always. And so if you would like... Turn with me this morning to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I want to look at our exalted Lord and Savior to turn again that that focus that we need in life to be able to, to walk as he would have us to walk, to see where he would have us to go, to grant us that wisdom that he is for us so that we may better understand his will for our lives. To that end, I have simply two points to make. Uh, First of all, Christ is the supreme Lord of all creation. Whatever is going on in the world, whatever is going on in our country, whatever is going on in our lives, remember this, Christ is ruler over all, and that is his because he is the creator. That right belongs to him. And secondly... Christ is the all-sufficient head of the church. There is a need sometimes, even for the people of God, to come back to that realization that it is not this way of thinking, it is not that person, it is not this teaching that is going to make the difference. It is Christ. Always, and again I say, Christ should be central in our focus for how we go about thinking, how we go about living. And so let us hear God's word for us this morning. Through the Apostle Paul, we hear in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is also head of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." Let us bow in prayer. Our Father, we ask that you would speak clearly to us this morning. We need to hear 
over and over and over again those things that you count as most important. And your son certainly st stands at the head of that list where we have sought our own ways, where we have thought we had a better idea. Forgive us, Father. Let us hear once again that our Lord is the one who can alone satisfy our every need in life for this world and the world to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ is the supreme Lord of all creation. Things can be said of him that can be said of no mere creature, no matter how marvelous they may be in power and strength and in glory. There are things that are said of our Lord that simply cannot be said of such wondrous creatures, even as the angels. What is it that Paul wants to bring the Colossians back to see? We're uncertain exactly what the problems were in the church. Some think there was some pre-Gnostic kind of an idea with all the focus upon the spiritual powers that exist. Perhaps so. Some say it was Jewish thinking, trying to bring people back a little bit under the Jewish way of doing things. Perhaps, again, that is true. But one thing, whether it was Gnostics or Jewish thinking, Paul says the answer to your problem is to come back to Jesus, to come back to think again about who your Savior is. <coughs> let, me, <coughs> let me apologize at the beginning. My voice is a bit, little bit wonky. I do not know whether it's allergies or that cute little grandson that we have, but somehow or another something snuck in this week, so forgive, forgive the... Uh, slowdowns along the way. What we, what we see in Christ is what is necessary for any who are seeking that spiritual life that, that we long for, that every man longs for. They may not see it. They may not understand it. We do because we have been given God's word, but they are looking for spiritual life. And to do that, they have to be able to know God. How do you know God? How is it that you can come to see and understand the truth about the one who says, I can do what you cannot do? How do you understand the invisible God? He's beyond all of our senses. I, I've never heard God speak in an audible voice, never seen him, no vision of him has ever crossed my mind. I cannot reach out and touch him when I want to, feel him. He is not that kind of God. He is spiritual. So how do you know him? You know him because God said, here, let me show you a picture of myself. Let me give you an image that you can focus on. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Probably make use of both of those. Um, he provides for us that image in Jesus Christ. That, that is how we best know God. And in fact, that is the only way we know God, because whether you are reading in Genesis, where we read that God created, or you're reading at the end, where you hear Jesus come quickly, the whole scripture is about Christ. Old Testament and New Testament alike, we have revealed in the image of God, in Jesus Christ, that which is needed for us to understand who God is. Now, the author of Hebrews puts it a little bit more eloquently, perhaps. 
He says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If you want to know God, then look at Jesus and you will see who he is. Jesus said the same thing himself, but he put it a little bit more simply for us, those of us who just need it put in uh, more concrete terms. He said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That, that's how simple that is. Being the perfect image of the Father means something very important for us. Any other attempts to reveal God other than through the image of God in Christ, well, they are both superfluous and inferior. You can't get better than the one who is the exact representation of the being of God himself. You just can't do it. He is the all-sufficient word of God who reveals heavenly truth without error. There is no question when we hear God speak through his word, the word Jesus Christ, as revealed in the word of Scripture, there is no better that you can do. There is no more perfect picture of him. He is not simply the best way to know God. He is the only way to know God. There is no truth outside of Christ that will lead one to salvation. He is also, as we see related here, he is the firstborn of all creation. Well, if you've ever dealt with Jehovah's Witnesses, you know how they kind of mangle that. In fact, how they quite outright come to misrepresent it because they add a little word in there. He is the firstborn of creation. Uh, they, they say that he is not simply the firstborn, but he is the first one to be born. They, they say, in other words, that of all the creatures that God ever made, Jesus was the first one. Well, that, that, is, not, that is not always the intent of Scripture when it speaks of the firstborn. In Jeremiah 31, verse 9, the word Ephraim is used as a, as a, a way of speaking of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And in that place, God calls Ephraim, or Israel, the firstborn, or my firstborn. Now, a firstborn is very often in Scripture, yes, the first child born to a family, but it's used differently in a number of places that help us to be able to understand Colossians here. The firstborn has rights and privileges that other children do not, but let's face it, Israel was not the first nation that ever existed on earth. They were, they were God's chosen people, chosen not because they were first, but simply because, well, I don't know. Why, why did God choose Israel? Why, why did God choose you to be saved? Why did God choose me to be saved? I don't really know, other than Bi the Bible tells me he loves me. He, he loves those, he chooses those who he wants to be his. Well. So it is here, the firstborn is not because Jesus was the, the first of all creatures. It is simply denoting his position of preeminence in the created order. He is the one who is preeminent not just over all the other nations, but he is preeminent in all of creation. Whatever distant star you may think of, whatever huge planet you may have in mind when you think of what is it that he doesn't have anything to do with? You're not going to be able to figure that out because everything in creation he is preeminent over. 
He is not the highest of creatures. He is the creator of all that exists. The one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, can be seen in the act of creation even from the very beginning of Scripture. By right of creation and by right of redemption, the Son has authority over all of this. All of it belongs to Him. Whatever we see with the telescope, whatever you can see with the microscope, that is something that God, Father, Son, and Spirit put into existence, brought into existence, and upholds by His power, as we will see in just a moment. Christ is preeminent in the material realm, but Christ is also preeminent in the spiritual realm. For as you note there, it says that by him all things were created, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created for him and by him. This is what God has spoken to us about this one that we call the Lord. He rules even over those things that the eye cannot see. Now, there was, a, there was an emphasis uh, in Gnostic thought about a, a whole lineage of spiritual beings that somehow or another worked their way down to be lowly enough to talk to us. You, to be able to reach God, you had to go through a whole series of them. The Jews, they got kind of enamored in the angelology of Scripture. Uh, let's face it, there's just not a lot about angels in Scripture, there are a few things, uh, at least that I know and know very well about Scripture, and the, the important one for me is in, again, the book of Hebrews, they are ministering servants for us. That, that is, they are not the ones that the people of God are going to look to for the help that they need when they need it most. Well, these, these creatures, while they may not be God, they're, they're pretty powerful, Remember Sennacherib's army surrounding Jerusalem? 185,000 men in one night. They're gone. And Sennacherib, who was going to destroy the city, and in fact had already destroyed most of Israel, he decided when he looked out and saw 185,000 dead, he said, I think I'm going to go home. That, that was the end for him, one angel. And there was the one angel in Egypt who destroyed all the firstborn in one night. These angels are powerful they are powerful. They are nothing that we would want to have to deal with all on our own. These powerful spirits, sadly, have taken on a role that was far too large for some people in our day and age. And I don't know that I, well, of course, I don't go to the bookstores much anymore, but I remember it seemed like there's always a new book about angels, something that is going to reveal things that you never knew before. Well, I... I don't know that we need to focus that much. Not that they're unimportant at all. We, we do appreciate what God has told us in his word about them. But they are not the ones that we're going to look to in our time of need. If we need help, we're going to look to the God who is master of those and who says as their master, you go serve my people. You go to them to do what I tell you to so that they might be rescued in their time of need. His preeminence means that all things, and here I think is even a more important point, his preeminence all things is backed up by the fact that they are all created by him and for him. You know, we, we tried to teach our children. I don't, my, my youngest child is 30, 
oldest child is about 40. <clears throat> I'm not sure it's taken yet, but we did try to teach them the world is not all about you. It really isn't. As, as much as you may want it to be that way, that is not what the world is like. But when we talk about Jesus, we can say, yep, it is all about him. All of it is about him. The, all, the whole of creation is about Christ, our Lord, because, again, he is preeminent. Rocks and rivers, trees and animals, men and angels were not created to function independently of God. That's why when the, the Old Testament talks about the rain that falls, rain doesn't fall. God makes rain to come down upon people. Even the rain, the winds, the waves, all of creation, they are subject to the will of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything was created for his pleasure. Everything is there to fulfill his purposes and to bring him glory, which is why Paul says, in whatever you're doing, even if it's just eating and drinking, you make sure that it's done for the glory of God. All things are dependent upon him, <clears throat> both for their beginning and their continuation. Notice verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. They hold together. Our dependence as creatures does not end when we are born or even when we are born again. Our dependence upon Christ doesn't end there. And in fact, there are some senses in which that is just the beginning. Christ is the glue that holds our universe together. He is the spiritual gravity that keeps everything from just flying apart. His power, as one guy puts it, keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. He is the one who keeps the world from descending into dark nothingness, and he does that every single day, every single moment of every single day in our lives. Were Christ simply to not care anymore, the world would literally fall apart. But he holds it together, and you know why? For you and I. It is for his glory and for the good of his people. That's how important we are. The world, why has it lasted as long as it has? Because there have been men who seem to be intent on destroying God's good creation, and yet here we still are, worshiping God, on the Lord's day. That is because Christ holds the world together for us. And that is where we want to turn our minds, is to the one who is not just Lord of creation, but he is also the head of the church. Pardon me. Look there in verse 18. He is also head of the, the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might have first place in everything. Whatever confidence it may inspire in you that God can raise up a Cyrus so as to set Israel free or to raise up a leader for us that we might return to some sense of sanity in the political realm in our nation today, whatever confidence it may give you that Christ is ruler over all the authorities in heaven and on earth, this ought to give even more, because he does what he does for the sake of his church. He remains forever the exalted head of the redeemed. He is the head who governs the direction of the church, the redeemed of God. As it is with creation, so it is with his church. He knows 
everything that is going on, everything that is going to happen. You know, we sometimes think God is the God of revivals, of when the church seems to just thrive hardly without trying. We go, there we see God at work. Do you know that God is also at work in the persecuted countries of this world, causing the, the enemy to try to destroy his people? God is also at work there. He's at work in our, our places, our places of worship, our places of work. God is at work there also when everything seems to be falling apart, and he does it with the intent of refining those that he has chosen to be his people. At least that is part of what is going on. As well as his glory is involved, so also is the welfare of his church. Whether there are great threats, sorrowful disappointments, unexpected blessings, know this, God is behind it. He is guiding it to the appointed purposes that he has determined is best for his people. He is the reason that life and not death is our assured end. He is the beginning of all life, not just in this world, but in the new age. That's a part of where we are right now. We see the now is and yet to come, both at work and the church. We, we see when we gather for worship, this is what the kingdom is about. This is where the kingdom of God is to be found, right here with the people sitting in the chairs in front of me. This is the kingdom of God that Christ came to establish and said, no man will ever be able to destroy it. God has made such promises to his people. He is the beginning of that new life. As Jesus put it on his last night before he went to the cross, because I live, you live. Our life is bound up in his. He is the vine, we are the branches. We derive our life in every aspect from Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. And because of that, death sting has been removed for us. It is not what it used to be. It, it is still an unsettling matter because it is unnatural in a certain sense. God did not create Adam so that Adam could die. God created Adam because he wanted him to live. Now, Adam's sin, of course, had a role to play in what happened. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following says that it was through Adam's sin that death entered into the world, but that's not the way God made things. So death is still an unnatural thing. And, and that's why it, it tends still to bother us to some extent. And yet, and yet, have you ever attended a funeral service and seen the difference between when you, when you go there and you see one who died in Christ and then one who never knew Christ? There is a vast difference in the tone and the setting of the funeral that goes on, the, the commemoration of such a person's life. Jesus told Martha that he did not merely promise resurrection. Do you remember what he told her? He said, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. Do you want life that endures forever? I am it. And if we want it, it is only through Christ that we are going to be able to find it. Through faith in him, the dread of death is softened so that we look down that road, and as you get older, you think a little bit more often of it. You look down that road, you know that death is in store, save that our Lord should return for us. It, that's what's coming. And yet, 
we see light and not darkness because we have that promise that we are his. This is what the head of the church has promised to his people. His supremacy and honor doesn't even end with this world. Jesus came to die and he was raised so that he might have supremacy in everything in time and everything in eternity. His preeminence will not end when the old creation is gone because it will be burned up. That is the promise of God. It will be refined by fire. But rather than fearing that like the world does, we look and say, can't wait. Jesus, come quickly. Let's, let's do that. That's, that sounds good to me. Let's find that place of perfect beauty and peace and joy that the kingdom of heaven will be for us in eternity. You know, great men and nations, they do take center stage. It'll last about that long. Lasts about that long. And then they are gone. I, I, I look out, I, I know some of you don't even remember it from your own personal experience, but a few of us do. The, the day that we heard the USSR had vanished as a nation. I mean, they were the great threat, apparently, to our nation and to the world. And then almost overnight, it was kind of like Babylon. Do you remember the story about Babylon? They, they're, they're eating and drinking. Unfortunately for them, they were using the Lord's uh, uh, goods from the temple to do that. They were eating and drinking in this powerful nation, feared by everyone. The next morning, it was gone. God can do that. Don't, don't uh, not believe that. God still rules over the nations in just the same way. To put it very simply, as Isaiah does, surely people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but what? But the word of God, that endures forever. You see, that's where we rest our hope. Why put your faith, your hope, your dreams? The next great leader is going to do it for us. No, he's not. He is not going to do it. I'm not saying we don't vote for those that we think are going to help our nation rather than hurt it. Sure, we do that. But Christian, don't think that they are going to be able to change things and make it better all on their own. They are not. It is God's grace that we need to be looking for, and we need to hold that in mind. The Word of God stands forever and His will simply cannot be undone. Nothing beyond Christ, nothing beyond the head of the church is (coughs) necessary for the fullness of spiritual life that you seek as one of his children. The head of the church is there for you, and that is all you need. No spiritual truths beyond what he reveals gives a fuller picture of God. You'll notice what it says there in that 19th verse. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. All the fullness of God himself in bodily form was there in Jesus Christ. Now, if all the fullness of what we can know about God is found in Jesus, what does that mean? Well, it means nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be added to it. False teachers confuse the weak with this profane dogma, something more is needed than Jesus Christ. He's good as far as he goes, but something more than Jesus is needed if we are going to be a truly 
spiritual people. False teachers say that Jesus was good, but not divine. He was a prophet, but no, now, especially 2,000 years later, we need a new prophet. So say the Mormons, for example. We, we, we need a new seer. We need a new revelation. We don't. We have Jesus, and if God doesn't reveal him as we see him in the word, then you don't need to know. We ask sometimes, why, why don't we know a little bit more about the childhood of Jesus? Wouldn't that be cool to have a little insight into what he was like when he was five years old or eight years old? You know why you don't know? It's because you don't need to know. If you needed to know, God would have put it in Scripture. For everything that we need to know for that godly living is to be found there. False teachers aside, as it was with Job, so many people today feel the need for something more. They, they want it. They're reaching out like Job did for an umpire is the way the New American Standard Bible puts it. Uh, they're arbiter. There are different words that are used in different translations. But I need a go-between. God is there, and he's almighty, all-powerful, and I'm, I'm just a lowly me. I need somebody. Please send somebody that can stand between the two of us. Well, we have him. Job wanted to see him. We've seen him. We've seen him in the pages of Scripture. Some people offer special men. Some people say the priests will do it. Some say there are angels. Some turn to Mary and the saints for that mediating position between them and God. And my word to you today, based on what Scripture teaches, is no, you don't. You have the Son of God. What more do you want? What more could possibly be given to you Paul, in this, this one word, brings his, this false line of thinking to an end. The fullness of God was in Christ. How could something more than the incarnate deity serve as a mediator that was better than Jesus, who was both God and man, fully so in each case? In him, as revealed in Scripture, is the fullness of life and all that is needed for salvation and perseverance. This cuts off all other routes to greater spiritual knowledge or power. Some are looking for a kinder, gentler Jesus. That, that's at least in part why the Catholic Church uses Mary. <coughs> it is because Jesus can still, though he was human, he can be kind of stern. So we need, we need a loving, motherly kind of uh, God to be able to help us out. And Mary kind of fills the bill for them. I, I want no one who is more gentle than our Savior. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That'll do it for me. I, I, I don't need others to do what Christ has promised that he would do. Whether it is in our own spiritual health or that of God's church, our hope is to be found in him. And let's make sure we keep it right where it belongs, centered upon Christ Jesus. He is creation's only hope for setting things right. Down through history, men have recognized, whether they would admit it or not, they've recognized there's something wrong with this world. Well, I, I don't have to ponder long to figure out, yeah, there's something terribly wrong with this world. We, we don't need anybody to tell us that there's something wrong, but their answers, well, their answers simply have not worked out very well. Christ in God is the only answer that we need. There is no sinner so vile 
There is no sin that has been so destructive that God cannot bring about reconciliation by his power. Through him, through Christ, in verse 20, he reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's, that's where we settle in and know, I have found that which is most needed in life. It came about through the bloody death of an obscure Jew in a province of Rome that was backwater at best. Nobody wanted to go to, to Judea to, to be a ruler there. Through that, that obscure, obscure Jewish man, salvation was wrought. Now, I know how that sounds to the modern ear. How unsophisticated or just how unspiritual. Bloody death? Really? Is that necessary? God says, yes. Yes, it is necessary. We don't pull back from the cross because ugh, it just doesn't fit with modern thinking. Not at all. That, that is our hope, is that that death paid for my sin that I could never have paid for myself. That is what we look forward to. Let us, let us not miss, though, the immediate context of these words. It is the subject of Christ as the head of the church. Whatever rifts that sin causes in this church, whatever damage has been caused, Christ is still the answer. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Through all the heresies that have been taught, through all the persecutions that have been faced, it hasn't changed. Christ is still the answer. Let us never give in to that idea that what we need to do is listen very carefully to the world's thinking from people who have tried thinking things in companies or in countries. <coughs> they, have, they have sought and found, it seems, the solution to some real problems. Let's listen to what they have to say so we will, we will know what to do in the church. Oh, please. Please. That's almost like some of the books I've read in the past. Let's, let's go out into the neighborhood and let's survey the, the neighbors to see what they think church ought to be like. Well, believers... They don't know. If they're not believers, they don't know what the church is supposed to be like. That's, that's our responsibility, and we find it here in God's Word. Let us not look to the world to fix what's wrong in our church, because the best they can offer is band-aids for deep wounds. Our work is to draw closer to Christ, to hear His Word, and to pray that His Spirit would illumine our minds. I know that answer may sound overly simplistic, but do you really have any other answer? Is it not true what Scripture says, that if we don't do what we do by faith, then we can never be pleasing to God? It may sound, sound simplistic to some people, but there again, that is the way that we live. When the future is unsettlingly dark, where else would, would we want to turn other than to the, to the light of the world? Let us keep our focus upon Jesus. He is the Lord of crea creation who has charted every single step that we take. He knows our every need before we even ask. He asks only that we come to him in prayer and ask of him again. He is the head of the church who promised even the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. We see many evil men, evil spirits even, at work in our world and we go, we're so small. Poor church. 
All we have is, wait a minute, all we have is Christ, the ruler of heaven and earth, Christ, the savior of our souls. We're on the right side, not, not only in history, but in eternity. I will tell you this, as one who pastored a church, even smaller, well, about the same size as what y'all are right now, for 30 years, it, I don't know the answer to how to make God's church grow. I don't know the answer to that other than this. We, we plant, we water, and who gives the growth? God gives the growth. When his time comes, I don't know what the future holds for this church, for the church that I belong to now. I don't know what it holds, but I do know this. Any future with Christ as the center of all that we do is better than any future, as successful as it may look, without Christ. With him, we have everything that we need, everything that is dearest to us, and everything that we can look forward to down the road, into the future, and into eternity. Let us give thanks to our God for such a hope as what we have. May we bow in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful to you that we have him who is as much as a bumper sticker as it may sound like, we have the one who is the answer. He is the answer to those concerns of our heart and life that, that can be the greatest of blessings or the greatest of concerns. Let us keep our eyes on him that we may bring glory to his name in what we do and that we may be an important part of that body of Christ that is used by you to bring your word to the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.